Makers of Sport Podcast, Episode 29, with Matt Powell. Episode 29 of the Makers of Sport podcast. I'm your host, Adam Martin, at T. Adam Martin on Twitter. Today on the show, our guest is a bit different than the traditional designer or maker that we've had in the past. Instead, we have someone that possibly knows more about the sneaker industry than any designer ever could. Matt Powell is joining us today. Matt is a vice president and sports industry analyst at NPD Group in Maine. He is also a writer for Forbes, where he covers the business and culture of sneakers at their Sneakernomics blog. Throughout his career, Matt has worked on both the retail and agency side of the business, including working with some of the biggest names in the athletic industry, such as Michael Jordan, Wayne Gretzky, and John Elway. Matt's research and writing have been synonymous with the athletic shoe industry for many years, and in 2012, Complex ranked Matt as one of the top 30 must-follow sneaker writers and bloggers on Twitter. Welcome to the show, Matt. I appreciate you taking time out of your busy schedule to chat. No, glad to be here. So I have to ask before we begin, I've, I've only seen photos of you and I haven't actually had the opportunity to see you speak live. However, most of the photos I've seen have, have been headshots or waist up. Are you, are you rocking some special release sneaker with your typical business getup? Uh, actually, I don't own any sneakers. Oh, really? <laughs> so, uh, real quick, I, I gave a brief introduction to you in the in the intro, but I like to give guests a little bit more of a deeper dive and an in depth background. Can you tell us a little bit about your story? Sure. Uh, well, I started out in the retail business um, a long time ago. Um, I was in, in the department store field for almost 20 years um, in various uh, merchandising, meaning buying positions, um, mostly in men's sportswear in my early life. Um, I went to work for a, a company that was the largest big box sporting goods uh, retailer at the time called Sportmart. Uh, they were in Chicago. Uh, they're now part of Sports Authority. And then I left there to go work for a chain called uh, sneaker Stadium in New Jersey. Um, we were a sneaker stu- superstores. We had uh, fifteen hundred styles of sneakers, basketball courts in every store. It was a, it was a very cool concept. Um, and then I worked for Models in New York for a period. Um, I started the consulting business uh, that wasn't really going in anywhere. And then, uh, as you mentioned, I had the opportunity to be a part of uh, MVP.com that was started by Elway, Jordan, and Gretzky. And uh, I got to, to meet those guys and uh, uh, to work with them, which was which was terrific. Um, and then, uh, unfortunately, the, the, that was about when the dot-com bubble burst in, in 2000. And so I ended up uh, con- with another consulting business, uh, which is really what I'm ending up doing today. I joined NPD last October. Um, and, of course, they are the gold standard for uh, data. Um, on, uh, on on virtually every area in the uh, in, in retail today. So, being someone that, you, like you mentioned a minute ago, you don't own sneakers. How did you end up getting super deep into covering this particular business? 
Well, I really, uh, I, I guess I would tell you that I ran for daylight. Um, I think people uh, wanted uh, wanted uh, information. Uh, I did a lot of work for the stock market in in my early days, and they were very uh, focused on uh, on Nike and Foot Locker and so forth. So I was really responding to a, a need in the marketplace. Um, but if you go back in my career, I've always been involved in sort of teen retail and and what makes uh, young men buy what they buy and. and and, uh, and obviously, sneakers are a huge part of that conversation. Right. Seems like in the 90s or so, which I'm, I'm, a, I'm sort of a child of the 90s. It's a common topic we talk about on here with the NBA in the 90s and everything. I'm, I'm 30, well, about to be 32. But that seems like when, when the sneaker industry really took off. But I am curious, though, at, at your, during your time at MVP, we kind of talked about you having the opportunity to work with Michael Jordan and a few other high-profile athletes. I've always been fascinated with MJ, not only from a basketball perspective, but from a, as a businessman perspective. And, and recently, it was in the news that Mike is worth over a billion dollars. So I'm curious, what was he like to work with from a business perspective? Uh, you know, he was really engaged. Um, he uh, approached it in, in a very businesslike manner, um, asked very good questions, thoughtful questions, made good suggestions, um, and was willing to give his own time to make the company better. One of the one of the ideas, and, and by the way, this was really Elway's idea to start the business. Um, and one one of Elway's ideas was not to have the athletes promote products that they were already getting paid to endorse, um, but rather to have the athletes teach kids how to play the game better. Uh, and so we had instructional videos of Michael uh, with a wo woman uh, who was on the staff with us who had played college ball. Um, and uh, they were, you know, they were illustrating how to do a crossover and how to how, how to do a pick and roll. And, and, and he gave a considerable amount of his time for the production of these videos. They were very cool. And, uh, uh, of course, it was at a time when broadband didn't exist. So um, not everybody could see them <laughs> because they didn't have enough pipe to get the to get a video, streaming video, but uh, uh, all, all still, he, he was a great guy and, very, and, and was very, very helpful to us. Well, that's interesting. I, I know that uh, the business is, is now defunct, but it seems like they were sort of ahead of their time when it comes to branded content. And I almost wonder if, if that would have started five years ago, it may have been a whole different ball game with absolutely. sending out these videos and things. Yes, absolutely. So uh, speaking of the 90s, and like I said a minute ago, I'm a child of the 90s, it seems like about 10 years ago, brands began reissuing sneakers as retros. And, and personally, I'm a big fan of this because it actually allowed me to pick up some of the sneakers I always wanted when I was a kid, but maybe my folks wouldn't buy. I'm curious what your thoughts are on this marketing strategy and is it helping the brands attract new loyalists? Oh, absolutely. Uh, uh, you know, I think you you go back to the original reissue shoe, the Air Force One. Uh, you know, which was which was dropped by Nike, um, and uh, a, a group of of uh, retailers in Baltimore begged them to put the put the product back in the line, and they did. And and you know, Air Force One is still uh, is still a top seller every year. Um, and I think that that Nike in particular has understood how to um, keep supply well below demand. Uh, so that the, that the hype continues for the next uh, the next release and the next release, and I, it really kept basketball 
in um, the consumer's eye and during a period when basketball wasn't really a particularly fashionable shoe. The retro shoes still sold well even when more inline products didn't sell quite so well. Um, and that, that's really an interesting, I, I think, uh, thing to keep in mind about the sneaker business is that over the 30 or 40 years, depending on when you want to peg the beginning of it, um, the, the, the business has really changed by category. Um, you know, back when I first started out in the retail business in the, in the mid-70s, uh, tennis was the sexy sport. Um, and everybody wanted to dress like Borg and, and McEnroe and, uh, and Jimmy Connors. And, um, and people wore tennis apparel as sportswear and bought tennis shoes as, uh, as sportswear um, and played tennis even. And, uh, and, and, of course, that died out. And, and, uh, and, and then the jogging running thing took off. Um, and then in the mid-'80s, uh, 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 Nike had the vision of signing Michael Jordan, and, and, and that took off. But for for various periods over the last 30 years, the basketball business hasn't been good. It's very good right now. Uh, we're in a really in a golden age of basketball. But five years ago, I would tell you the basketball business was not very good outside of uh, limited release retro product. Oh, interesting. I, I uh, from a from a casual sneaker perspective, it it doesn't seem like that would be the case. Obviously, you have the the data for that, but it, it seems like to me that basketball sort of heavily influences. Uh, the sneaker industry, but also culture, you know, in terms of like hip hop and things like that. I do want to, I do want to touch on tennis shoes. You, you actually mentioned that. I find that kind of funny that that was such a big, uh, a big thing back in, you know, you know, the eighties and and things like that. My here in, I live in uh, Kentucky and, you know, it's, you'll still hear, you know, parents and grandparents still kind of refer to all, all sneakers as tennis shoes, you yes, know, like put your tennis exactly. shoes on. <laughs> exactly. And that's, and that's really what the origin of, of, of that name came from was, uh, was, was the seventies when, uh, when people again, wanted to dress uh, like, like tennis stars. So how much does the sneaker industry influence the fashion industry in general? I think more than ever. Um, I mean, in, in the last rounds of, uh, of runway shows in New York Fashion Week, um, there were there was sneakers and athletic apparel all over the runways. And um, I, I think it's become such a, a driving force with young people that that the um, uh, the luxury designers uh, have tried to play in, in that marketplace as well. So it's really it's really interesting. So I would say the influence of athletic apparel and sneakers is it's probably never been greater so from a from a casual fan perspective like i said i mean i grew up a, a basketball player so i i love sneakers and i wouldn't call myself i guess a sneaker head by any means because i'm not sort of out waiting in lines or anything anything like that but brand loyalty in the sneaker business appears to be very prominent and and almost more so than any other business. It seems like you're either a Nike person, an Adidas person, et cetera. Um, are you seeing much of this? And if so, what, what types of things are brands doing in order to get people to switch that loyalty? Is it possible? Well, I think I think you have a, a core of people who are yes are very very brand loyal and wouldn't even look at another uh, another brand. Uh, you know, it's sort of like the Chevy versus Ford truck guys, right? And right. They're they're one or the other. But I would tell you that I think the general consumer is very willing, and and I would and I would also observe that the millennial I think is not nearly as brand loyal in many of the things that they buy. And and so if the product is reflective of uh, a look that they want or 
or a lifestyle that they want, uh, they they very likely would shift uh, from one brand to another. Um, you know, we've seen the dominance of Nike Jordan uh, grow over the last decade, but you know, ten years ago they were not nearly as dominant as they are today. Um, and when we've seen some other brands really lose uh, uh, some of their influence, and so it, it, the the, the industry is in constant turmoil. Um, you know, if you look at the top line, we've been relatively steady, growing at about four percent a year every year over the last decade or so. Um, but if you look below the top line, the, you know, the basketball business was not good for a long period of time. Now it's really good. The running business was great in recent years. Now it's kind of flattening out. Flattening out. There's some move that training may start coming back. Retro running is a, is a hot story right now. So the, the, there, there are constant shifts in, in category, in channel, in brand um, that are always going on here. That's, that, that's probably the, the thing that I find most interesting and stimulating is that it's not, I'm not reporting the same thing over and over again. Well, you mentioned the the running industry, and I'm curious. A couple years ago, I sort of got into running a little bit, and it seems the deeper dive you go in that culture, you'll see a lot of the bigger brands, uh, like the Nikes of the world and that type of thing. People tend to forego those brands in the in the hardcore runner groups for brands like Brooks and and Asics and things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, so, with this whole world coming about with these sort of new sports like CrossFit and, and Tough Mudder and things like that. I'm curious how that particular niche of the business is doing. Is Are you seeing some things sort of new coming from the, that world? Yes. Uh, I'll, I'll, I'll take it a little bit more broadly than, than the, maybe the two um, uh, activities that you mentioned. I've been talking about social fitness as a, a real phenomenon today. And, and what I'm meaning here is that, you know, five years ago, people used to go to the gym and work out by themselves. Um, you go run on a treadmill, maybe do an elliptical, maybe lift a little bit and leave. Um, and not really interact with a lot of other people. You, you might see one friend there, but it wasn't. It was not that kind of activity. Today, people are going to gyms and taking classes, participating in CrossFit, or doing Zumba, or yoga, or Pilates, and and it's become very social. We actually have gyms who are taking out the big equipment and to make more studio space to 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 ride this uh, this trend right now. And because it's social. The fashion element has really started to come into play. And, you know, maybe you went to the gym in, in your old college T-shirt and a pair of ratty shorts because you knew you were going to get sweaty and you didn't really care. And you didn't care. You weren't interacting with anybody, so it didn't matter. Now people are going and they're dressing. And the choice of footwear is a piece of that uh, sort of fashion decision. Uh, so I think we, we, we're we in a really interesting place right now where, where uh, the active lifestyle has spilled over and beyond the gym, right? I mean, we've got this whole fashion trend, uh, I describe it as, you know, where to work, where to work out, where, you know, see a woman in a pair of, you know, capris and a, and a, and a hoodie uh, at work, and then she's going to the gym at lunch or after work and, and wearing essentially the same clothes. Right. Or the, or the whole, uh, the, the sort of yoga, yoga yep. gear phenomenon where it's, it's kind of flexible in terms of being able to pair certain tops with it and switch it out. Exactly. We talked about millennials earlier and, and I myself am actually a millennial. And so I've been heavily interested in things like millennial marketing and millennials in the workplace and that type of thing. So typically millennials really pay attention and are interested in things like social issues and that type of thing. And we know in the past that some of the bigger brands have had some issues with 
some some PR things in terms of how their products are made. I'm curious, is this something that you're seeing uh, because you study millennials in, in the sales and that type of thing? Is this something that you're seeing that they're starting to pay heavily, heavily attention to and the brands are starting to pay heavy attention to in terms of how they're making products? Yes, I think millennials want the brands that they buy to reflect the, their values, um, and they are very values-driven in terms of decisions that they make. Sometimes I think they may not be as aware of, of, of some of the circumstances that are out there, but they certainly are, are, are focused on it. And so if a brand is reflective of their values, if a brand is working to become more sustainable, if the brand is working to be a better world citizen, um, if a brand is spending money to help young girls in foreign countries get to play sports. Um, all of those kinds of things um, roll up to be very positive for the millennial. So nowadays, and and this has kind of happened, I guess, maybe over the last 10 years as well, we've started to see these big sneaker conventions and sort of with the the advent of social media and, and that type of thing, you, you see a lot more blogs and people that are covering, people like me say that would start a blog and just cover sneakers because we're passionate about it. When did collecting sneakers and the whole buying and selling and trading sneakers and that whole world sort of become prevalent? <laughs> Well, I, you know, I think I, I don't think anybody really knows, but I, I, I would I would tell you it probably started with the original Jordan shoe, and um, uh, it, it, but you're right to point out that social media, um, the internet, has allowed much broader trading. It has allowed people to to share information in a much more um, simple way, um, and so it, it, it really has fueled this explosion. But I I think people collect sneakers, uh, you know, uh, going all the way back to 84. Wow. So with the social media world and, and like we were mentioning, people like me can sort of create our own blogs and things like that. And then there's this whole sort of quote, hype beast, unquote mentality where you'll have this sneaker that is sort of heavily pushed, heavily written about maybe because somebody sees somebody else write about it and, and, so they sort of just pick it up off that. I'm curious if you see much of that happen and then the sales actually end up not reflecting the amount of marketing attention that the thing got on the blogs. Yeah, you know, I, I talk a little bit uh, and I, 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 people think I'm being critical here, but I, I, I talk a little bit about the, what I call the echo chamber of the sneakerhead world and, and that, you know, a, a, a shoe, a, a brand, an event is is bounced back and forth inside this echo chamber and it makes it sound, seem like it's really a loud voice. But w when you look around the big world outside, most people don't even know that it's going on. And, and and so very many of the, the really hot sneakerhead shoes are just simply not commercial in terms of units sold. And part of part of why there's hype around them is because the resale value is so high and people are looking to make a quick buck. Um, but part of the reason resale value is high is because the, the pairs are not commercial. I've often said, you know, you have a shoe that maybe somebody makes 10,000 pairs of, the kids wait in line to buy and resell for three or four times on, on the internet. If the brand made 100,000 pairs of those, they would be on the markdown rack. Well, it's, it's definitely interesting. It seems, it, it almost sort of plays off of that whole hipster mentality where they don't want it to be mainstream, you know, like what's right. the, what's the hottest thing. And which is funny considering that sort of street brands and, and, and the culture 
the biggest culture, probably consumer of sneaker culture is probably doesn't want to identify with the whole <laughs> hipster mentality. Right. So some, some recent big industry news, and we talk about this whole hype beast thing is, is Kanye West, obviously joining Adidas and releasing his new Yeezys, which seem to be a bit more high fashion than sneaker. And, and honestly, I haven't seen them in person, but I haven't been able to find an Adidas logo on them, which seems a bit rare. Can you give us a bit of insight into these sort of special artists and fashion designer collabs? And do you see this being a trend that grows in regards to celebrity collaborations? I, I would tell you, I think we're probably post-peak on uh, on celebrity collaborations. There are so many of them, um, and uh, it's very difficult to sort of keep track of, of which ones where and who what's going on. And and uh, when when you have too many of, of a, an event uh, continuing to happen like this, it starts to really lose its meaning. Uh, and that doesn't mean that every shoe or every every celebrity is 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 out. Um, but uh, th- there are just so many of these collaborations that I, I think it's very confusing at this point to even know where the marketplace is. Now, when those guys switch brands like Kanye, obviously going from Nike to Adidas, is that something that has a big effect, honestly, these days? Because it seems like from an advertising perspective, you know, it used to be you had people that uh, endorse products, celebrities, and now it's more about what do your friends endorse? Right. I don't think it has a lot of real commercial uh, impact on sales. Um, we have not seen Adidas's uh, sales trend change uh, since uh, since West has been on board, as an example. Um, and and I would even point out, you know, the LeBron, who's the the biggest selling um, uh, pro athlete today, um, does a tiny portion of the overall uh, Nike business. E- even Jordan, which is an, a most amazing phenomenon phenomenon that we've ever seen does about 10% of Nike's total worldwide sales. So it's it's not like, you know, he's he's a third of the business or half of the business. It's re, it's really a relatively small amount and LeBron is a tenth the size of Jordan. So um, these these celebrity and even athlete endorsements tend not to be really highly meaningful in terms of uh, commercial numbers. So what, what, what portion of their business, let's just take Nike, for example, is sneakers versus other products like the football industry, you know, like gear and merchandise and things like that? Well, Nike, Nike's biggest business is running. The biggest business in sneakers worldwide is running. Um, And so because everybody can think of being a runner, every athlete probably runs at some point. um, And they also are just great looking casual shoes. So that's the biggest part of their business. Internationally, the three businesses that matter, I'm meaning outside the U.S. now, are the three businesses that matter are running soccer and casual. Uh, basketball is only really important in the U.S. and China. What about some of these um, Chinese brands coming about, uh, you know, signing some of these sort of American athletes? Are you, are you, do you think they have an, uh, an opportunity to really kind of make some, some plays in the American markets? <laughs> I think their their intention here is really to gain credibility with the Chinese consumer. Uh-huh. 
they want to be able to say, uh, we have an, an NBA player wearing our shoes, so therefore our brand is cool. And of course, there's a whole lot more that goes into coolness than just paying someone to wear your product. But they have none of them have really tried to push a tremendous amount of product in the U.S. market. Lening took a, a run at it a while back and and uh, didn't didn't go well. Um, so this is much more about uh, being credible to the Chinese consumer as opposed to really trying to sell a lot of shoes in the in America. So we talk about the a minute ago, the celeb and sort of sanctioned collaborations. There also seemed to be a new world in, in some of the deeper parts of the community with collaborations or, or special releases with custom shoes made by maybe artists. One example being Mosh Custom Kicks in New York. Are the brands aware of these types of customizations going on? Sure. And and I think they're trying to get their fair share through, you know, uh, the Ami Adidas site or, or the or the Nike ID site and, and allowing consumers to, to uh, craft their own shoes. You know, it's funny, you go back to a few years ago to the Jeremy Lin mania that was happening for a while. Um, Nike made a special shoe for him to wear, um, but they could not get enough, could not produce it quickly enough to get get it out to retail. So they offered it up on Nike ID, um, the exact colorway that Lynn was wearing. And so you could order one-offs, but they couldn't, they couldn't make enough pairs to, to get into the market. So I, I and, and I think they're driving this whole, uh, this is part of the hipster movement as well, I think. And and again, millennials wanting to be unique is is, is this customization story, and I think I think it's going to continue to be very very important. It wouldn't surprise me to even see down the road as uh, Nike becomes more adept at, uh, at at fly knit that you might have a, not only a custom cosmetic shoe but a custom made shoe specifically for your feet and, and take us to another level. 3D printing is going to allow us to do that kind of thing as well so that it becomes more than just the color of the laces and the tongue that get customized but we're actually now talking about custom fit. Uh, or even building a shoe um, to your to your specifications that are that you know a high top and a low top. I'm I'm, I'm being facetious here, but um, you know that you 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 really could divide design a shoe that's uh, yours and yours alone. Well, I think 3D printing is definitely an interesting area to kind of kind of go down, and I'm curious with things like Nike ID if if eventually. You know, right now we can customize our shoes within reason, but right. I'm curious if the sneaker industry will ever allow for things like open source software development or technology similar to like app stores where indie developers can create applications that interact with the sneakers themselves. Have you been seeing any of that? I have not seen it, but it it seems like to me a very possible idea that, uh, uh, again, as we get better and better at customization and, and manufacturing and uh, and, we, and the manufacturing becomes more machine-driven and less people-driven, the reality of that happening is certainly out there. So with, with these things like 3D printing, and we obviously live in an, a time where entrepreneurship is prevalent and it's easier to connect to vendors or manufacturers and also to sell physical products online. Now, I doubt that it's possible that new brands can arise and compete with the big boys, but with the power of these small boutiques and this trend towards handmade and small batch products in other industries, do you foresee new brands arising and becoming serious competitors? 
Um, you know, the barriers to entry are very high. Uh, we haven't really seen um, a significant new sneaker brand come on the scene that wasn't backed by a larger shoe company in a long time. And, the, you know, there were some very interesting ideas, oh, five years ago, people trying trying to get started to create a recreation, as an example, or clay. And, and you know, some of these brands are still around, but, but they've never really been able to get the critical mass where they made money and, and were really a viable standalone entity. So it's, the barriers to entry are very, very high today. Yeah, and it's, it seems like, uh, I know when I was in high school, and one obviously became really big because of the whole street, street basketball world. And I, thought, I think that was started by two business school graduates, if I'm not mistaken. But, but I'm, it's kind of funny that they went sort of deep dive into the niche of one sport only. So are you seeing that? Is that something that is maybe a negative thing in that world? If you were to start a brand, you would want to kind of span out across multiple sports? No, I don't think you could afford to do that. I think you. I think this the mono uh, the mono idea is the correct one. So you've got you've got brands like Brand Black that are happening in basketball right now. Um, that it's in, in a good way reminiscent of, to me of of Antoine and what they did early in the day. They're really fashion basketball shoes. Um, you've got brands like Newton and Ampla and Scora and Altra in the running scene, and they're and they're focused on one thing and one thing only, and that's making a great running shoe. So, um, again, the barriers to entry to be in multiple categories is, 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 is just far too high. Well, it seems like that it's, it's almost putting all of your eggs in one basket, so to speak. And I know with And One, the thing was that everything really relied on that whole street basketball thing. And eventually that street basketball world sort of got old. You know, right. like nobody actually plays in the street anymore. And even the sort of famous Rucker Park actually has a, a real basketball court outside. Right, <laughs> right. exactly, exactly. Well, you know, I think that they are definitely putting all their eggs in one basket, and I think it's, it makes economic sense. But you've got to time the market right, and you know, you've got we've had all these great running shoe brands come in, come into the marketplace, and now the running business is, isn't as good as it was. Some of these guys may not make it because of that. Um, Brand Black may be in a good position just because we're in a real basketball boom time right now, and there's not a lot of of uh, brand competition out there for them. So. So um, it, it, it is very much about timing the market. So to kind of change change pace here a little bit, when I was uh, when I was in sixth grade, I remember convincing my mother to buy me a pair of black Converse sneakers. And they were actually the shoes that were worn by the NBA dunk contest champ at the time, Isaiah Ryder. And I think they were around like seventy dollars. And I remember <laughs> I remember her thinking that that was absolutely outrageous. And then. Yep. My next, my first probably $100 pair of sneakers were these black and white and gray Zoom Flight 95s, which actually just came out again, I think maybe a year ago. And, and I believe I purchased those with Christmas money. Now, if you look at how far we've come on price and accepting that $100 sneakers is the norm now, and in most, case, in most cases, that might even possibly be the low end. Right. I'm curious, do you think that we will ever see a $300 sneaker from retailers be the norm? And at what point does it stop? Well, I think we'll see a $300 sneaker, yes, and I think it will sell in commercial quantities. I don't know that it's the norm. I mean, if you if you really start to break down the total world of men's athletic footwear, just men's now, not women's, not kids, the average selling price is about $62. 
So it, it's a big country out there where we're selling lots of shoes at, at prices that are well below $100. That said, though, all of the growth in 2014 came from shoes over $100. The business under $100 was down uh, in the, about 4%, and the business over $100 was up 20%. Um, so the, it, there is a premium element to what's happening here. But I also think we have to put the premium idea into perspective and say, okay, we're looking at $175 shoes. What's a Michael Kors handbag sell for? What's an IS, you know, an I, I6 uh, sell for now? Uh, and so it, it, if you put it into perspective of other things that teens and teens and, and college age kids might be buying, shoes are still relatively inexpensive. Right. But, it, but at this point, do they become luxury items that you actually say are now no longer playing basketball in? Oh, for sure that. Uh, I, I would tell you that, you know, and I need to really, I, I probably can get at this with my new company uh, is, is, to, is to drill down and, and look at exactly what's happening uh, in terms of usage of shoes. But the conventional wisdom is that 85% of all athletic shoes are never used for their intended purpose. Um, that they're school shoes, they're uh, Saturday night shoes, they're uh, conspicuous consumption shoes. Uh, uh, so it's, it's, not, uh, it's not so much about people actually playing ball. The number, the number of kids playing basketball declined last year. So we, we know this surge in basketball business has got nothing to do with, with kids actually playing. Wow. 85%. That's a huge number. I'm yeah, actually, it's a big number. And I really should prove it because it's, it, it would be fascinating to really know what that number is. But that's always been the sort of the conventional wisdom of, uh, of footwear. Well, and, you know, honestly, I wonder how much of it you mentioned kids stop playing basketball, but how much of it has to do with kids that are actually not playing sports anymore? Right, right. And, and, and we have a we have a real problem in this country because kids are not playing sports right now. And uh, we're losing uh, we're losing a whole generation of kids now who are not going to be, be, be really using athletic shoes for their intended purpose. Right. And, you know, we, we touched on this a little bit earlier, but growing up as a kid, I remember I used to be able to go to just about any park, even here in Kentucky, and kids would be playing ball like at night. And now, you know, it's just dead. <laughs> right. They're playing Xbox instead. Right, right. So, <laughs> so what are your thoughts on the whole reseller industry? Is that good for the industry? And I mean, what are the brands? Are they, are they for it, against it? Yeah, I, I, I think the brands are basically for it from a concept that this is creating hype and, uh, and energy around their products. I, I would tell you that I don't think the brands are really comfortable with people gouging on prices and, and, and the kind of resale prices some people are getting. Um, I, I also think that they are concerned that, um, you know, resellers have found ways around uh, the, the, the uh, structure of trying to control who gets which shoes. And, and that has, uh, that has caused uh, some pain for folks. So, uh, you know, yes, I think they all in probably still like the idea, but I think they know that there are issues with resellers selling that are that are problematic for their consumers right and i think probably one of those problems with sneakers being so popular and maybe low-income communities and that type of thing it seems with every new limited release we see a lot more violence and, and including murders over sneakers i'm yeah. curious are the tinker hat fields and those guys of this industry paying attention to this kind of stuff and what effect if any does that have on the business 
Yeah, you know, I think they've they've Nike is uh, in particular has tried to take a lead here, but but Adidas is, is focused on this as well, and that is you know how do we how do we con- have crowd control? How do we uh, get sneakers to kids who want them? And and how do we avoid this violence? I think that no one wants to see that happen, and and so that's sort of the downside of all of this. But it's also interesting. I, I would tell you that if you go back in the mid '90s, uh, you know, kids were getting killed over starter jackets too, and and so this is not this is not something that just happened and, and I'm by in no means am I excusing what's going on here but it's been a problem in, in, for a, for a while with with teens right and I actually remember the whole starter jacket thing and and honestly I think the first time I ever um, remember anything about sneakers where uh, some some gray uh, Jordan 11s came out, the f- initial ones, I believe, years ago when I was a kid. And that was, you know, before the whole internet, you could buy these things on the internet. And and I remember kids like <laughs> getting jacked at the mall for their sneakers or whatever. So it's definitely uh, definitely an interesting problem that, that yeah. the, seems to get a lot more play just because it's the sneaker business as opposed to maybe any other industry. For sure. So... A hot topic in the technology industry and especially the Silicon Valley is this idea of design-led companies and design thinking mentalities. And I know that Nike CEO is a designer. And I think that it's no question that all of the brands have great talent as it regards to design and marketing. So what really sets the brands apart from one another since there does seem to be parity in regards to talent, but there still seems to be big gaps? Well, you know, Nike is so big today; they can really do anything they want. Um, and and uh, I always use the example of you know, for for years, Nike tried to get into the skate shoe business, and failed. Uh, and they finally said, "Look, we're going to put our best people on this. We're going to way over invest in this category because we want to be in the skate shoe business." And so they put. Top top talent up and down the, uh, the 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 whole shoe process from sales to design to to manufacture and and became the largest skate shoe company in the world. Um, and but if you did a P and L on it on just the skate shoe business, you'd probably say they lost money, but they're big enough that they can afford to do it. And so it, it, they're, they're, that's probably the biggest gap is really resources and capability as opposed to talent. Uh, there are great, great talented people all, all across the industry, um, but the, the, the resources, the ability to execute, um, I, I think, are, are what differentiates Nike from, uh, from others. Well, that's interesting that you mentioned the skate shoe industry. And I think with a lot of those sort of extreme sports, those guys, uh, a lot of times from a brand perspective, try to shy away from the, the quote, mainstream areas. And it, I, I know that that was part of the problem with Nike skateboarding shoes initially was that some of the boutiques and stuff, they, they thought they would lose credibility amongst right. <laughs> amongst the their audience if they started yep. selling Nikes. <laughs> And, and it seems like years but ago. It's interesting. You know, I, the, fir- the first time I encountered kids camping out for a shoe was in uh, L.A. At a, at a sneaker shop who was getting a, a dunk. Um, wow. And, and, and so it was. It was not uh, the basketball uh, kids hanging out. It was. It was uh, skateboarders who, who were waiting to get a, a pair of really special dunks that were coming out. Wow, that's that's interesting. I would not have thought that. So. You've been in the industry now for many years. Is there anything that truly surprises you with the sneaker industry? Yeah, I would say I'm I am blown away at how much fabulous technology is coming out right now. We are we are in such a, a golden era of, of new technologies, um, both in 
well, really across the entire thing, not just materials, but which is very important, but manufacturing technique, um, lean manufacturing, taking taking uh, labor costs out of a shoe, leaps in technology in terms of how we're selling a shoe, these bots even, and <laughs> trying to defeat the, the online business. It's just fascinating how much technology has come into uh, into this world when it used to be you, you bought a shoe, you put it a, a box out and you sold it and, and it was kind of a simple transaction and it's become so much more sophisticated today. So uh, you mentioned technology and, and I know now you're, you're covering a little more than just sneakers, right? At your new yeah. position. Yes. Let's talk about wearable technology for a bit. I know you recently were at the consumer elect- electronics show and you were on a panel for yeah. NPD. Yeah. Can you discuss any of the trends that you see or anything innovative that might be coming as it regards to wearables in sport? Well, the, the fitness tracker business has is, is been explosive. Um, the number of people who are buying uh, 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 instruments that can track uh, how far they walked and their heart rate and that kind of thing. But it's also very interesting that we are, our data is showing about a 40% abandonment rate in the first six months uh, of these trackers, and which closely mirrors the abandonment rate of, of new fitness club signups uh, that, that You get that kind of fallout relatively quickly. I think what we're going to see down the road is much less emphasis on on the hardware and much more emphasis on the software. The the monitoring devices will be relatively generic and will be able to monitor lots of different things. And depending on what kind of athlete you are, you're going to you're going to to look at metrics that that uh, impact what you do. So if I'm a tennis player, I'm probably going to measure my backhand speed and my lateral movement. If I'm a basketball player, I'm probably going to measure my vertical leap and quickness and explosiveness and and so forth. So every athlete's going to be a little bit different, and so I think it won't be nearly as hardware driven, and will be much more about the, the software. We're collecting the, the data points and then uh, and then building that into a fitness regime that helps you play play your sport better. Now, are these things going to be more prevalent among like the the pro athletes and the college athletes? Uh, sure. I, I mean, I just can't see Johnny Johnny Hoopstar that's thirty two years old playing with his buddies you know, want to measure his vertical, like he cares, well, you know, he's yeah, got to work tomorrow. I, mean, it, it, I think it depends on, it depends on where their head's at in terms of getting better at their sport. And it also depends on how accessible the, uh, both the instruments and the, and the software are. And I think that the, that folks are, 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 are really interested in, in doing whatever they do better. Um, and so if, if they can find an inexpensive and simple way to, to, play their sport better, um, even if they're just a, a Saturday afternoon basketball guy. Um, I, I think there's there's validity there. Well, I, it's, it's good to hear you say that, honestly, because from, part of the reason why I started this show was because the sports niche overall tends to have less people focusing on things like startups and software, you know, in, in uh, comparison to like, say the Silicon Valley and everybody wanting to create the next big social app. And I think there's a lot of opportunity here, especially with things coming with, with sneakers and, and possibly apps, app stores and that type of thing. So, so definitely glad to hear you say that. So I have to ask though, what are your thoughts and predictions on the Apple watch and it's a potential impact on maybe even just sports wearables? Well, I think... 
To me, the real breakthrough in watches is going to be a, a device that does not have to be tethered to a phone. And as, as I understand the Apple Watch, it's still, for many of the functions, this has to be tethered to the phone. And so that, that if, I, if I'm a runner and I can leave my phone at home but can still get tweet, texts and tweets and, and email uh, and know that a call's even coming in, that's a big breakthrough for me. Um, and I don't, I'm not sure we're there yet. But uh, yeah, I also think we're going to see these devices get more and more sophisticated. Um, I said to somebody the other day, remember, remember when your phone was just a phone and, and as opposed to a little computer now? And, and uh, so I, I think we'll see these devices become more and more sophisticated as we go along. And, and people will learn how to use them and, and learn, learn what's best. And, the, and those things will get amplified. And the, some of the things that they do maybe today will, uh, will go away. Very cool. Well, Matt, I appreciate you coming on the show, and and I, I'm a big fan of your writing. I'm I'm not so much one of the guys that maybe inter- interacts with you as much on Twitter, <laughs> but I do read your stuff. And Thank you. I'm curious, have you ever thought about doing a podcast? I have. I, I I'm probably actually going to be doing more of a webinar kind of a thing um, via NPD for our paying clients. Um, uh, that's probably the next level. But yeah, the podcast certainly is uh, is an idea out there to maybe expand on some of the ideas of the blogs that I'm writing and that kind of thing. Right. And, and actually, I don't know if you saw this or not, but when Nike released the latest Kobe, they actually did the podcast interview with, I think it was Eric Avar. Right. Did you happen right. to see that? Yes, I did. So lastly, to, to kind of wrap up here, where can listeners support you, reach out to you online, read, read your stuff? Sure. Well, um, my uh, Twitter handle is uh, NPD Matt Powell, M-A-T-T-P-O-W-E-L-L. Um, and uh, I, I actually put my email address in uh, my profile on, on Twitter if uh, uh, I welcome questions. Uh, particularly, I get a lot of questions from students um, who are uh, working on projects and need a data point or need a perspective. Uh, I have a lot of fun with that. I'm, I'm actually teaching a class next week at Pitt and a couple weeks after that at the University of Southern Maine right here in Portland. But so uh, at, at, at NPD, Matt Powell, um, I'm on Forbes as Matt Powell. Uh, those are probably the two easiest ways to get to me. Very cool. Well, Matt, I appreciate you taking time to come aboard and, and it was a, a pleasure talking to you. A lot of fun. Thanks. I appreciate it. My next guest is going to be TJ Harley. TJ is the founder and creative director of Harley Creative based out of Atlanta, Georgia. Before founding his own design shop, TJ was creative director of the Collegiate Licensing Company at IMG College, where he led the in-house creative team for nearly 11 years, providing creative direction and brand strategies to more than 200 CLC and IMG clients. Also, TJ and his wife just had their first child, which is the reason we ended up having to push this episode back a couple of months ago. So from the makers of Sport Podcast and Friends, we definitely want to wish him and his wife a congratulations. Big thanks again to Matt Powell for giving us some of his time. Again, as he mentioned, you can follow him on Twitter at NPD Matt Powell. A couple of things real quick. If you missed the last halftime episode, I discussed the differences between U.S. business structures and whether you should incorporate if you are planning to take on some freelance work. That's at makersofsport.com. 
Lastly, please take two minutes and write a review of the show on iTunes. You can get there by going to makersofsport.com slash iTunes. Again, it helps the show get discovered and continues to link us with a great community of creators and entrepreneurs in this industry that want to do quality professional work. If you've gotten value from myself or any of the guests on the show, including today's show with Matt, then please share, rate the content so that others will get value and discovered as well. As always, I'll accept ratings or likes on Stitcher, SoundCloud, or wherever you happen to be listening to this right now. Again, to reiterate, the show is listener supported and not advertising supported. So please take those two minutes and go write a review. Makersofsport.com slash iTunes. I'm at T. Adam Martin on Twitter and Dribble. The show is at Makers of Sport. Until next time, have a good week. 